Well, brothers and sisters, remain standing and take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And before I read from verse 45 and 46 of Matthew 13, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us this morning. Now, Father, we bow before you in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And we ask, O Lord, for great enlightenment. We ask for understanding. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear this morning. And Lord, let us grow under thy word. Let us see it, O Lord, as our spiritual food and let us eat it and devour it. Lord, let us grow thereby. We pray, O Lord, that our hearts would be ready to receive these truths and doctrines, and Lord, that we would hide them away in our hearts and that we would be able to evaluate ourselves in light of the word of the living God. Now, Father, bless the preacher, the preaching, the hearer. Lord, bless your name. Bless us. Lord, as we sit up under thy divine word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, beloved, Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Our Lord said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this parable, like the one before it, is simple, it's to the point, and yet it's deeply profound. It's easier to understand than it is to practice, like so much of the word of God. These parables that these two parables, the hidden treasure and the costly pearl, though they, they teach one central doctrine, they come at it from different perspectives. They both teach that the kingdom of God is valuable, inestimable. It is of great value. It was important that our Lord Jesus, as he had the disciples to himself, they had withdrawn from the crowd and now they are alone and they are under that private tutelage of our Savior. And he is continuing to explain and expound to them the kingdom of heaven. Now let us remind ourselves, what is this kingdom Well, this kingdom is not so much geographical as it is spiritual, though there is a geography to the kingdom of God in its broadest sense. Now, the broadest sense is that God is sovereign and he rules over all his creation. He manages his creation. That's called the doctrine of providence. And we should have no problems with the teaching of scripture that God is ultimately sovereign, and he manages his creation as he sees fit. But then there's another dimension and aspect of this kingdom of God, and it's the one that we've been focused on for several weeks now. 
And that kingdom is that spiritual kingdom wherein Christ rules in the heart of his children, his followers, his true disciples, the children of the kingdom of God. He rules in their hearts and it's a saving rule. It's a rule of grace. It's whereby the, the, the law of God comes by the grace of God. And now that one who is now a new creation in Christ can carry out the work of the kingdom in new obedience or evangelical obedience. That's what our forefathers, our spiritual forefathers called it. New obedience or evangelical obedience, meaning that it was not obedience that was that, that we would somehow be working for our salvation, but it was that obedience that flowed from the sovereign grace of God in our lives. That the fountain of our obedience was the saving mercies of God to us. And what we're doing in our obedience is a response of thankfulness to our God's amazing grace. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is expounding upon in our text. And brothers and sisters, Certainly, the parable is calling upon us to render an evaluation that we must, in our own minds and hearts, calculate for ourselves the worth and value and preciousness of the kingdom of heaven. And that's our calling this morning. That's our duty this morning. As we sit up under this word, we must, again, in our reason, in our minds, or sanctified reason, we must bring ourselves to this estimation of this kingdom to make sure that we value it the way our Lord tells us to value it. And if we fall short... We should repent and we should seek forgiveness. And then we should seek that new obedience that that repentance requires that we would begin to practice what we have confessed as our failure. You think about the value of something and you certainly have to address it from some subjective point of view. What is valuable to one person is not necessarily valuable to another. And yet our Lord in the previous parable has taught us the value of the kingdom by his willingness to leave heaven, to come to, to, to incarnate, to put on flesh, to be incarnated in this world and life, to be injected into it through the womb of a virgin, live a life of obscurity, and to die a death of ignominity mockery, hatred. The scriptures tell us that the enemies of Christ hated him. 
hated him. And so we should look to our Lord. Because, beloved, I, I, I believe I, I'm a fan of John Calvin's writings, and one of the emphasis he makes in all that he does is how weak, feeble, and misguided our human reason is apart from the truth of the word of God, apart from the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. We're incapable of making the estimation that is required in the text in and of ourselves. And that's why I believe this parable of the costly pearl is related to the life of a Christian, not an unbeliever, not an unbeliever. Here Jesus is describing to his disciples and now to us what the life of a Christian should look like if they value the kingdom the way they ought to. What does it look like if, if we claim to, to, to be a Christian and we place a high value and estimation on the kingdom of heaven, what would that look like? Would we be able to identify it? Can we even recognize it in ourselves? And that's the task at hand. We will see by this parable, beloved, that our Lord brings three emphasis to these two verses that we will contemplate this morning, or at least that I will uh, labor to lay before you so that we can estimate this kingdom and see if that estimation of the, of the way we live is compatible with it. I doubt very seriously that any of us here this morning would give a low estimation of the kingdom of heaven I doubt any of us here um, would not give it the highest marks and the highest priority, at least in lip service. I believe we would. But the question is, beloved, as we know the, uh, the proverb, talk is what? Cheap. And practice is much more difficult. And I think we all know that to be true. And yet we are under the ministry this morning, under this, these glorious saving graces where God calls his church together on the Lord's day to come and meet with us. We are now under his special care and privilege to consider this estimation and value of his kingdom so that we can uh, so that we can conform to it, so that we can walk in it, so that we can make any adjustments to our calculations so that we can receive that great and glorious reward of eternal life. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss the reward. Now let's look at the text and let me lay these three ideas before you. The first idea that is by me holding to or interpreting the text that the merchant is the Christian. The merchant is the Christian. And the, 
the, the clarity of the, of the parable itself, the main emphasis of the parable is an, an, an all-encompassing life. That is, this, the value, the kingdom of heaven is an all-encompassing life. It's total. It's complete. The second one is inferred by the text. Obviously, the first one is the obvious statement of the text. My second point is an inference from the text. And it comes from the, that Jesus is using a, the businessman, a pearl merchant, to describe the life of a Christian. It was well known in that day that a pearl merchant had to be a very adventurous person because shopping and finding and, and, and going out to look for pearls, but as the text tells us, the, the mother of all pearls was his ambition. He would certainly take on many challenges and face many dangers. And that's another description of the Christian life. The Christian life is full of challenges, is it not? The Christian life is full of, of what we might call snares and dangers, just like the life of our Lord. And our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to us, if they hate me, as he was teaching his disciples, preparing them for their own ministry. Listen, these people hate me. And they're going to hate you because of me. And the third, the third point that I will make from the text this morning is the exceedingly great reward, great reward of those who live this life. In verse 46, it says, upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The point made there is, brothers and sisters, that what Jesus said in other at other times with his disciples and among other crowds was that all who seek me will find me. And that's not just a evangelistic verse, but that verse applies to the Christian. Now let's begin looking at what this looks like, this all-encompassing life that is the kingdom of God is the reality and that our value and estimation of it is seen by a life that is, that is, if we have the right value and estimation of it, it is demonstrated by a life that is all-encompassing and all-in with the kingdom of heaven. We cannot buy into the philosophy that we are to mesh or synchronize other worldviews with our Christianity to make it palpable for us or to make it enjoyable for us. This life of the Christian is a life, a life of delight and joy and gladness. There's nothing in the text 
that leads us to believe that the merchant is made to be in this profession. The idea is that the merchant's full passion and desire is to find that great pearl and to own it as his own. It's life-consuming. His heart is full of the, the, the thoughts and practice of how shall I trade? Where will I go next? Who shall I contact? How many nautical miles will I sail this year in order to find the greatest of pearls? He loves his job. He's passionate about it. And that describes the Christian life. Or it should. It should. And brothers and sisters, on this side of glory, we know our weaknesses, right? Where our worship services were, they be public or private, our families or whatever the case may be, riding privately in our own vehicles and whatnot, our hearts should always be ready to express joy and gladness and thanksgiving to our God. But that's not always the case. It is so easy to allow the, the, the contemporary events of the day to have such a negative effect upon us that we get consumed by them. And we begin to worry. We worry about our politicians. We worry about the Supreme Court. We worry about our council culture. We're worried about all of these things. Who will be the next tyrant? And beloved, I'm not saying those things aren't important. Well, they certainly are. But they do not take precedent and priority over the joy and love of the kingdom of heaven. And we have to be diligent to watch for that migration of, that comes into our lives. And we find ourselves coming into worship with cold hearts. We find ourselves coming into worship with with hearts really not prepared to celebrate his goodness and glory and salvation. It's a total life, beloved. The life of a Christian is not to be synchronized with other philosophies and worldviews, and it's not a life that we can just pick up and put down when we choose to. For that's not real Christianity. And our Lord was a prime example of this. Our Lord's zeal for the salvation of God's elect, our Lord's zeal for the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus say? I come to do the will of my Father. I can do nothing else. My Father's will is my food and drink, Jesus said. Jesus says it's, it's what motivates me. That our Lord, listen, I want you to see the picture here because it's our elder brother, as it were, being our example and leading us along the way that our Lord Jesus was consumed to do the will of God. 
in flesh. He was consumed by the will of God and he didn't let anything get in the way. And he was always ready to explain that his delight was to do the will of his father. You can remember when our Lord went around preaching and he was calling some in this group, uh, in a group to come to him and, and they gave him excuses on why they could not come and follow him. And you remember one of them said, I, my father is sick and I need to stay and take care of him. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead and come and follow me. He said, well, that sounds harsh insensitive. Now, brothers and sisters, there is nothing insensitive about setting forth the doctrine and truth of what is necessary to enter into eternal life. There's nothing insensitive about it. Jesus is correcting this idea that the kingdom of heaven can be put off. It can be, well, it doesn't need to be a priority today. I'll make it a priority next week or next month or when my children leave the home or when they graduate or when my husband and I retire or when our church is larger or when we have a different minister. We are full of excuses. And we've, we, we tell ourselves these excuses all the time. If I had a different wife, if I had a different husband, if I just had better children, if I had better parents, if I had more friends, if we had more people, we could do so much better and Jesus puts off the excuse making by saying, brothers and sisters, today is always the day of salvation. Even, you, even as you sit here this morning, my brothers and sisters who possess the kingdom of heaven in your own hearts, who have been regenerated, born again, and then put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you cannot fail to continue to show the priority and the eminence and the value of heaven in your life. You're not allowed to lay it aside. You must daily pick up your cross and follow Christ every day every day and of course we have to take into consideration places and circumstances we certainly have to consider those things we're not all equal in our callings we're not all equal in our stage of life we are all in different places but where you are where we all are where we find ourselves right now the question before us is what value do I estimate the kingdom of heaven and do I live according to that high value
That's the question. If you are a young person, you're still in school. What are you to do? But to be a young person in the light of where you are in your education, in your household, whatever the dynamics of that is, that you will seek to be faithful where you are. Maybe you're here this morning, you're single. You have to be a faithful single person. If you're here this morning and you're married, you have to be a faithful married person. If you're here this morning, you have children. You have to, that has to be involved in your pursuit of the kingdom of heaven as well. How do I impress upon my dominion this kingdom of heaven? How do I, uh, 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 how do I bring forth the righteousness of that kingdom in these circumstances and in these differing places? Jesus is already in in a different way, same truth, said this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 6. And again, I'm impressing upon you as Christians, you are not to lay aside your profession of faith. That is, I have made a profession of faith I have publicly been baptized. I have joined the church. So now I can sit back in my easy chair and coast the rest of the way. That's not the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33 of chapter 6 helps us understand that. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The verb there, seek first, is a present tense imperative or it's a commandment and it's a command that must be done at all times. We're to always be seeking the kingdom of heaven. We're always to be seeking the priority of the kingdom. How? Well, as the text tells us, in righteousness. In doing the things that God would have us do in any given circumstance. That is, what's my duty as a Christian pastor? Who is a pastor, an elder, a member of a session, a member of a presbytery, who's a, a father and a husband, who's a business owner, an employee? What, what are my roles? What are my responsibilities? How am I to impress upon all in all of these categories the kingdom of heaven? By doing righteousness. By seeking to, let me say it simply, to do right. And what defines right? The word of God. God tells us what's right, what's wrong. I don't make it up. I don't look to the world. I I don't read the conventional magazines of the day. I'm not looking to science to be the ultimate answer to everything. I look to the God of glory. He has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. And I look to the one who made everything and to whom we owe everything to tell me what's right and wrong. 
And then I are to do what? I am to submit myself to it. In prayer, what do we pray for? We pray for strength. We pray for the courage to do it. Because as we move into the second point, the Christian life is full of challenges. It's full of, it's full of dangers. You can say, well, I don't know that we're really face a bunch of dangers. Beloved, let me tell you something. Here's the problem. Here's, the, here's a problem with Christian people. They think if it's not physical, it's not real. Do you know the danger of heresy, false teaching, false teachers, false doctrine, false teachers, false doctrine? <laughs> what did they lead to? They lead to a life of error. A life of error. And there's going to be many, 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 many on that day of judgment, our Lord said, that's going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not teach in your name? He's going to say, yep. But I don't know you. They never exercise this, this value of the kingdom in their lives because they did not offer that new obedience and that evangelical obedience to the kingdom. If you value this kingdom of heaven, you will submit to it and obey the word of God in it. If not, you don't value it. And, and that's, there's no middle ground. But what we do need to understand, beloved, is that none of us do this perfectly. And that's why I believe there is this ongoing seeking in nature of it. Every Christian who has the Holy Spirit in them desire, desire nothing more than God himself. Nothing more. God is everything. His presence is our food, our drink, our joy, our peace. Churches, churches who, who, who put all of this value in all of these secondary things miss the first thing. Every church, every Christian church must be a God-centered church. Must be God-centered. If we are a God-centered church, we're going to be a Christ-centered church. If we are a Christ-centered church and a God-centered church, we're going to be a Word-centered church. If we are a Word-centered church, we're going to be full of the Holy Spirit church to carry out that salvation and sanctification that Christ has brought to the earth and in his name and that the spirit of God is out applying as he sovereignly sees fit the gathering and maturing of the people of God. But make no mistake about it, beloved. God is first. His kingdom is first. He's before, he's before husbands. I, I, I've counseled many, many ladies that I had to correct in their idea of submission. 
when I would talk to them about their church activities and their church attendance, and they said, well, well, my husband will not allow me to go to church. And they thought for some reason that they were being obedient to God by this, this ultimate all-encompassing submission to their husbands. And I said, wait a minute. I said, your husband has a sphere of headship and authority, but it's not total. God commands us all to go to church, to gather with God's people, to be edified and built up, to be challenged, to be corrected, to be rebuked, and to be built up in hope and faith and righteousness. And you are to hear that summons and you are to obey that summons. But my husband will get mad. I said, I'm sure he will. But you need to go tell your, you need to go, you need to sit down with your husband in a very kind voice and you need to say, honey, forgive me for I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you by allowing you a sphere of sovereignty that you don't possess. I love you and I want to be submissive to you, but I can't be submissive here. So, Next Sunday, I'm going to obey my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to go to church. And all week, I'm going to be praying that you will go with me, that God will break your heart, and that you will see my obedience and my love for him as a somehow a hammer to your hard heart. But I love you, but I'm going to obey God more. And you could just see the, the chains fall off because in the obedience of God's word, there's liberty. There's liberty and freedom. You could just see her countenance rise and, and, and a glow all enter into their eyes. And I have yet to find, I think only one, all the rest came back and said, you know what? My husband cried with me. Now, they didn't go to church immediately, and I've lost contact with many of them. But God blessed their heart to obey him first. Now, that's the same with husbands, right? When we fail our families and we fail our wives, we must first make it right, and we must... We, we must seek the kingdom of heaven first. It's, and it's that way with young men, young women. It's going to be that way with families. It's going to be that way with older children in the families. It's different with younger children. It's the same way even in the church body. And brothers and sisters, I think the point's made. Let's move on to the second point, And that is that the Christian life is, well, it's not easy. I just mentioned an example of what a wife had to do with her husband. Do you think that was easy for her? I, I'm sure it was not. I'm sure she was, I want to use this word, and it doesn't exactly, it, it, I'm sure she was afraid. Not in a sinful fear, but just 
cautious that I don't know where this is going to go. Now, there was no abuse or anything like that. It wasn't, she wasn't afraid of that. She was just afraid of the disappointment, the argument, the, the, what is going to ensue from this is going to be hard to live with. But, and so she had that concern and, and that's not an easy thing to do. But, but love it, the Christian life is filled with those types of events in our lives where we have to humble ourselves, where we have to confess our sins, where we have to discern between one thing and another, where we have to keep the estimation of the kingdom of God above the value, above everything else and render decisions based upon that calculation. That's a no. This is a yes. Always a yes, this is a no. And then people are going to recognize that and some of them aren't going to like it. Not going to like it. You can, you know, uh, let's talk to our young ladies here. You know, I can tell you as you, uh, uh, the, with the potential of a married partner, you have to make an evaluation whether or not this person is going to aid you and help you in the kingdom of heaven or work against you. You can say, well, he or she's really good looking. And I'm really drawn to them. What we have to evaluate everything through the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean we can't desire them. It doesn't mean there's not a desire for them. It just means that we have to first, what, seek the kingdom of heaven. What does that look like? It looks like we estimate everything in light of brothers and sisters. And I'll tell you, young people, let me tell you something. And you listen to Pastor Stanfield on this. Don't marry a half-hearted Christian. You will regret it. There are innumerable married people in church where there's one spouse that wants to serve and there's another spouse that doesn't want to serve. And don't think it doesn't have an impact upon the kingdom of heaven in its outward form. It's better to be single than to be joined together with the wrong person. Trust me. I've counseled too many people. I've heard the heartbreak. I've heard all their stories and they are heartbreaking. It's better to be single. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians 7. It's better to be single than to rush into a relationship that you will regret later on. Same thing with parents. There's probably... The love that a parent has for the child is, it's, it's the next thing to heaven. You agree? It's the next thing to heaven. God is first. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11, right? My father, my mothers, my brothers, my sisters are those who obey me. You've come to me, you have to hate father, you have to hate mother, you have to hate son, you have to hate daughter. Now we know, I hope we know this morning that that's not literal, but because we ought to love these. We naturally love them. 
We naturally love our, our spouses. We naturally love our, our sons and our daughters. We naturally love them. But the love that we have for God has to exceed that love that we have for them. And I cannot, again, like, because Satan has been turned loose upon the Christian home and the weaknesses of the Christian home have been exposed in the marriages between the husband and the wife and in the parenting of the children. And so many children are going astray and parents are willing to just throw the kingdom of heaven aside and just lay down before the children and do whatever they want just so that they can be at peace with them. I understand it, but it's wrong. It's wrong. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. All these things will be added to you. The merchant faces dangers. He faces the, 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 the unpredictable sea when he, when he travels from one port to another to examine these pearls. At any moment, storms can blow up, particularly on the Sea of Galilee. We've seen it with Jesus and his disciples. Fierce storms that sink boats in the Sea of Galilee all the time, even to this day. It's a life of danger. It's a life of facing perils. It's a life that's all-consuming. And yet, at the same time, nothing can get in the way of this relationship with Christ in the kingdom of heaven and God. Nothing. Brothers and sisters, like the wife that sat down with her husband, you sit down with your children, you take them by the hand, you look them in the eye, you stroke their hands, you kiss their cheek, you weep and you say, I love you, I love you, I love you. But I will not put you before God. I will not. And if you force me to choose, hear me now. I will choose God. And you weep with them. You throw your head on their shoulder. You wash their neck with your tears. They may get up disappointed in your decision, but they will not get up thinking that you don't care. And you let God deal with them. You let God work in their hearts. Because if you know anything, parents, you can't change the heart of your children. God can. And you ask them, well, forgive me because I've put you before God. It was wrong. I've been a bad example for you. And I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm a weak father. I'm a weak mother. And I loved you so much I was willing to put you before God, but I've fallen under conviction. The word of God teaches me otherwise, and I have not valued the kingdom of heaven. And I'm asking your forgiveness. And I'm begging you to be patient with me. Well, I'm, I'm an inconsistent Christian parent, and I have made many mistakes. But from this day forth, I'm going to serve my God first. And that's what you do. 
and you leave it before the throne of God. The Christian life, beloved, there's three main enemies. I'm not going to touch on all of them here. We don't have time, but our own flesh is our enemy. That is, we desire daily to sin against God. We just wake up and sin naturally. And that's why the kingdom of heaven is a present tense imperative, seeking it, because we have to continually seek it in order to put to rest and death those what? Deeds of the flesh, right? It's a daily thing, an hourly thing, right? minute by minute, right? I'm sure some of you just can can understand what I'm talking about here. Though the flesh is always ready to sin and it must be subdued. We must bring the spirit and the word to bear upon our motives, our motivations, our thoughts and our desires. And we must constantly be pulling down those things in our lives and heart that rise up against the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. The second enemy is the world. John clearly tells us in his epistle that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You can't love both. You have to choose one over the other. When Jesus is teaching at one point, He said, remember Lot's wife. You know who Lot's wife was? You remember the story of Lot's wife? Remember they're fleeing the city of Sodom. And the angels told them, whatever you do, we're going to destroy the city. So whatever you do, don't look back. Don't look back. That is, we can infer from the commandment, don't look back, that a looking back to the city would be an expression of longing for what God is destroying. That is, that's that's the opposite of loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And they run from the city and they're getting a safe distance away. And before they can get reach that point of safety, Lot's wife turns back and looks to Sodom. And she immediately becomes a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. Brothers and sisters, this world has, is, has a lot to offer and every bit of it is junk. Junk. It's counterfeit. It's not going to bring you peace. It's not going to bring you joy. It's not going to bring you that long-lasting happiness that you seek and want and desire. It's not going to do any of those things, but it will decay your heart. It will rot out your soul, and it will make sure that you are fit for hell on judgment day. This world is your enemy. And you must see it. Now, I'm not talking about the physical trees and the plants and the mountains. 
I'm talking about the philosophies and the teachings and the doctrines of men that even our Lord told his disciples in Matthew 15, stay away from these Pharisees. Stay away from them. Their teaching is infectious. Stay away from them. Have nothing to do with them. Don't let their teachings infect you. So this life isn't easy and it's full of dangers and yet there's the devil himself. The various things that he stirs up in the world, the various conflicts, the tyrants that he promotes, the tyranny that he fosters, the darts that he continues to shoot, continually shoots at you, must be dealt with spiritually. You must exercise a faith that is divine, given to you by God. You must exercise it. You must walk in it. You must practice it. You must become strong in it so that you can extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. You think about sins like anger, bitterness, revenge, covetousness, lust. All of those are attributes of Satan because he's guilty of every one of them, and his children are guilty of those things. If there is a lie that has been successful among God's people, it's the idea that he, it's the, it's the lie he promotes that somehow you're missing something. You know, your marriage could be better. You just, you're, you're missing the right woman. You're missing the right man. You know, you're missing a few things. You know, over here is better. You're the right church. Oh, the right man, the right this, right there. You're just missing something. You lack. You know what? You just need to put that old marriage behind you. You need to just come over here and do it. You need to put that church behind you. You need to bounce from church to church to church. You just, it's always that you're missing something. You're lacking something. And you know what that's a sign of? Ingratitude. Because God has given us so much in Christ. He's given us so many gifts, so many graces. So he's given us the people that are in our lives right now. And you know what? When we want something more and better and, 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 and than we already have, all we're doing is demonstrating an ingratitude to God. All, what did he, even Matthew 6, look at the context there. You're worried about what you don't have, but you're not focused on the things you have. The last point and it's just marvelous. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19. Because I think the text can make the point. I'm going to read, uh, you see the story there beginning in verse, um, or the narrative in verse 16. It's the the. the the confrontation with the rich young ruler. And uh, I'll read the text and make some closing comments. Verse 16, and someone came to him and said, teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, well, why are you asking me about what is good? 
There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples heard this, they were astonished. Very astonished and said, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, here's where I wanted to be, verse 27. When Peter said to him, then Peter said to him, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that if you have followed me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His throne, his, glo- his glorious throne, you shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, that is not just the disciples, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father and mother or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, There is an exceeding reward for those who live this Christian life. That reward described in the statement eternal life is a pregnant idea of the fullness of joy and gladness, bliss, the presence of God forever and ever and ever communion with the saints in uninterrupted bliss and glory, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, the scriptures say. It is that life, and that life, that life, beloved, is given to you even today in token form. That is, we can face the challenges, the bumps, the bruises, and all of the tests and the trials. We can face these these uncertain days with the joy and gladness of the kingdom of God because we already have the, the deposit of that truth in our hearts. We have that deposit of joy and gladness now only to be realized fully in the day of consummation. Now I'm here to tell you, listen, this world is not everything. Your life is a vapor in a season. Eternity, forever. What value, what value do you place on your soul? What is it worth? What's your soul worth? 
What's the glory of God? I, do you, listen, you sit here this morning. The glory is the glory is not the glory of God worthy of a thousand years. He said, "Oh, the glory of God is worthy of a million Jess Stanfields. Nothing, a life, nothing compared to the glory of God. Seasons of a church, nothing." to the glory of God. Preeminent and valuable. And when we live in light of that gospel truth, there is a reward waiting for you on the other side that is immeasurable and unspeakable. You can smile now because it's yours in Christ. And because our Lord was greatly rewarded for his suffering, you say, well, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know it's mine? Listen, our Lord Jesus in all of his suffering was rewarded with the heavens and the earth as his inheritance and all the nations. Our God was faithful to reward him in his obedience and faithfulness and he will be faithful to reward all of you. He's just. Brothers, these things belong to you in Christ. The question we leave with, as you assess yourself this day or even before we come to the Lord's Supper, what value do you place on the kingdom of heaven. Will you be like that sinful woman that came, just burst into the party to take that expensive perfume and wipe the feet of Jesus? Pour it and wipe it with her own hair and her own tears because she valued him more than that costly perfume. Let's pray. Now, Father, we barely touched this glorious reality of the Christian life. Lord, that we would be like this merchant, full of the passion to find this pearl, that we would be full of passion and desire for the kingdom of heaven and we would not let any of the potential dangers of this world keep us from serving our master here and now. And that we would long and delight in that reward that waits for all who believe and trust and walk in obedience to you. Lord, that even now with my brothers and sisters, we would be jo we're joyful to know that Christ is ours and that we are his. Now, Father, as we come now to this supper, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would evaluate ourselves and that we would long for the communion and fellowship that we have with Christ our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.